What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Aisha Ghul Savash read her story, Notions of the Sacred, from the January 2nd and 9th, 2023 issue of the magazine. Savash is the author of two novels, Walking on the Ceiling, which was published in 2019, and White on White, which came out in 2021. Now here's Aisha Ghul Savash. Notions of the Sacred I once heard a woman say that immediately upon finding out, she'd felt the dawning of a strange inner power. It seemed as though she could undertake any task, could live through any hardship. This was a strength not of muscles, the woman said, but of light. In this new form of herself, she felt more alive than she ever had before. She was recounting all this once it was already over, after she'd had an abortion, but her memory of that brief experience was still tinted by her encounter with what she now believed to be immortality. The woman's story stayed with me, and I thought about her words when I myself found out, searching my body and mind for signs of my own power. I can't say that I felt it, not in the way that the woman had described, but I certainly sensed the shift, as if I'd entered a different dimension and from then on inhabit two worlds at once one steady and flat, and the other mysterious, with depths I could not yet fathom but knew were there. The day I confirmed the news, I had taken a test and gone for a checkup too. A stroke of luck found me an obstetrician who was available to see me that same afternoon. She conducted a scan and told me that everything looked good. I left her office feeling elated. On a whim, I entered a shop and bought a felt hat, wide-rimmed and peacock green. It was impractical, more costume than accessory, but I wanted to mark the day somehow, my entry into the new dimension. As I walked down the street wearing the hat, I saw people glancing at me, and I beamed at them full of my own mystery, like a benevolence. I thought of the face of the Virgin Mother in scenes of the Annunciation, and had a new understanding of her inward gaze, at once present and far away. That evening, I attended the birthday party of a former colleague. He lived in a northern suburb with his wife and two children. I cycled to the party as I did to most places, 
It was a pleasure to be testing my strength under these circumstances. I had no doubts about my decision, even if my situation, single in a foreign country, might appear difficult from the outside. Perhaps, I considered, this was the power that the woman had been referring to, this certainty that I would manage. There were many people I didn't know at the party. It seemed that my colleague and his wife had formed a large community, though they too were foreigners. I could identify the friends who constituted their family here, the ones who were affectionate with the children, those who were putting away dishes in the kitchen, the woman who brought out the cake, making a joke of my colleague's age before presenting it to him. Usually at such events, I'd be filled with a desire to talk to everyone I found interesting, and simultaneously overwhelmed by the effort it would require to do so, whereas on this evening I felt at ease. I was involved in conversations but not overly invested. I kept remembering the faces of the Annunciation, their calm dreaminess. On the table of drinks, I had found bottles of non-alcoholic beer. I would never have thought to offer such a thing at a party, though I gratefully took one when I arrived. On my second or third bottle, I was approached by a man I'd identified as belonging to the inner circle of friends. Earlier, I'd seen him take my colleague's young son and swing him high up in the air to the child's wild delight. Don't get him so worked up before bedtime, my colleague's wife had chided, though she also seemed amused. After we introduced ourselves, the man asked me whether I belonged to the American or the Greek school. I told him I was neither Greek nor American. That's not my question, he said. I wondered if you belonged to the American or Greek school of thought. Pointing to my beer, he said that the American school believed, out of superstition, that keeping a pregnancy secret in the early stages would ensure the well-being of the baby, whereas the Greek school favored telling as many people as possible to call on the protection of the community. I feigned shock at his question, though I was, for some reason, neither shocked nor offended. I accepted that the man was flirting with me in some unusual manner. I felt the same benevolence I'd experienced in the afternoon when I'd beamed at strangers in my green hat and I didn't deny my condition. It had never occurred to me, I said, that women kept the news a secret out of superstition. I'd always assumed it was an outcome of patriarchy. If anything went wrong, it would be considered the woman's fault. Besides, women needed time to negotiate with their workplaces, to secure their positions, because their employers generally treated their fertility as a liability. I see, the man said. You're probably right. I realized he was surprised that I'd taken his comment seriously. He must simply have meant to tease me about my drink, not knowing he was onto something. In any case, he continued, I would place you closer to the waters of the Aegean than to the lakes of Michigan. And I think, he added, that this is a very fine position. Once again, I didn't object to his words. For the time being, I had no intention of informing the man I had slept with. It had been a brief affair, and I could readily imagine his distress at receiving the news. I didn't have the patience for it, nor was I interested in any sort of commitment he might half-heartedly propose. I walked to the park in the early mornings. I spent evenings reading in bed. I went out for lunches on the weekend, sitting on cafe patios, chewing my food slowly and deliberately. It was early spring and the trees were luminous with papery leaves. In the mirror, 
I saw myself as part of this resplendent moment, even though I felt very tired. Perhaps this was what the woman had meant about the power that overcame her, this sense of fragile beauty, but beauty nonetheless. Some months before this, I had become reacquainted with Zoe. She and I had been close friends at university and had lived together for several months after graduation, a time that we later mythologized into a golden era. It was true that back then I thought of many people as close friends, because our relationships had not yet been put to any test. And although it seemed that Zoe and I shared much more than our youthful enthusiasm, we had grown apart over the years. One of us had achieved early success and flaunted it carelessly. The other had made an unfair comment that traveled through the circles of our mutual acquaintances. There had been no reckoning or drama, but we both knew that something had turned sour. Still, we kept in cordial touch. Neither of us wanted to sever our bond completely. We would certainly cross paths through work, and we could not afford to be hostile. We followed each other's life on social media, and it was always with curiosity that I came upon Zoe's news. In photographs, she looked confident and warm. I liked this person, and I found myself missing her, wishing for her to be in my life again. Zoe had recently moved to a small town nearby with her husband and came frequently to the city. She was the one to send an email, suggesting that we meet for coffee. The first few times we got together, we were both guarded. We spoke of our achievements with false modesty, complained more than was necessary about her careers. Then Zoe sent me a message announcing that she was pregnant. Years ago, she'd undergone a serious surgery that put her fertility at risk. This had always been a sincere point of contact in our friendship. Zoe's worry that she would not be able to have children, and with the announcement of her news, our past grievances seemed to vanish. The next time Zoe came to the city, we finally reconstituted our old connection. Zoe was now in the fourth month of her pregnancy, expecting a girl. She would have told me weeks before, she said, but there was such a taboo about sharing the news early. Which is just awful, she said because it leaves women feeling totally alone. I was glad for my friend and for our renewed closeness, which at last felt untainted. So it was with Zoe that I first shared my news, excepting the man at the party. Perhaps I wanted to talk to a woman in a similar state, as if she could offer protection through her kindred position. I wrote to Zoe asking whether her daughter would have any rules regarding cousins coming to sleep over. What? Zoe wrote back. What are you saying? Immediately, she called me and switched on her video. We didn't have a habit of speaking on the phone, and the gesture touched me. We were both teary-eyed on screen. I told her about the affair and about my scan. I shared with her my feeling of belonging to two different dimensions. Oh my goodness, Zoe said. There is no better way to put it. We complained about the unfairness of not being able to drink alcohol, not even a glass now and then, because we'd been warned that the risks of moderate consumption had not been properly studied. If men got pregnant, we said, the effect of every drop would have been documented. But complaining was also a way of expressing our contentment. It was, perhaps, a ritual of sorts to ward off the evil eye. I'm so glad you told me, Zoe said. I wish I'd shared with friends earlier but I'm so glad we're in this together. She kissed the tips of her fingers and blew on them. I blew kisses back. 
In the coming days, we exchanged frequent messages. Zoe told me to honor the space I was in, to be gentle with myself and listen to my body, surprising me with her fluency in this type of language. The next time she came to the city, our meeting was even more enthusiastic. We sat on a restaurant patio, both of us in long sleeveless dresses. You and I are so connected, Zoe said. She was in her sixth month, and her hands moved often to her belly, pulling down the fabric of her dress as if to assert her condition. We ordered grilled fish, and, as a joke or celebration, asked the waiter if the restaurant had non-alcoholic beers. Over lunch, Zoe told me at greater length about how she had conceived, without any intervention, thanks to a careful diet and daily meditation, though she had been told by several experts that it would be difficult. Your body knows how to heal itself, she said, and it hears your intentions. As for me, I'd hardly given the matter any thought. It was an accident, even though it had recently begun to dawn on me that my time was running out. Still, I hadn't proposed anything to the men in my life, had not considered IVF or freezing my eggs, even if I could have afforded to. I'd done nothing more than abandon myself to pleasure. Which just goes to show you, Zoe said, that these doctors don't know anything about the miracle of our bodies. I wasn't quite sure what she meant. After all, I'd never consulted doctors, though they would probably have told me what I already knew, that I was past the limits of youthful fertility. Still, I didn't object to what Zoe was saying. If anything, I encouraged a conversation, the wonder of our synchronicity, the way it had happened so naturally for us both. There was the sense that we were special in our good health, in the blessing we had received. I didn't acknowledge our smugness then, or, if the thought occurred to me, I brushed it away. I had now shared the news with a handful of people. These announcements felt like gifts I was offering, letting the recipients know that they had an important place in my life. And with each, I felt a thickening around me, of joy perhaps, or love. My mother had already decided that she would stay with me for the first few months after the birth. On the phone, I recounted every new discomfort I felt, and my mother cooed and soothed me. From time to time, I told her Zoe's news as well, what sort of birth she wanted, her plans for returning to work, the curious new ways of her body. I jokingly scolded my mother that no one had told me about all the bizarre things that happened in a pregnancy. I never thought you had any interest, my mother said. If I'd known, I would have told you everything. There was a fresh intimacy when we talked, as if we were quenching an old thirst. I knew that my mother worried about the man I'd slept with. She wanted me to talk to him before long, to ask how much he would like to be involved. But she didn't want to disturb our bond or say anything that might upset me. It was for this reason, I assumed, that she didn't question Zoe's return to my life either. Years ago, when I was consumed by the waning of our friendship, I had turned to my mother to vent my frustration. I told her about the time Zoe had asked for my help in writing a proposal. I'd given her all my best ideas, I said bitterly. But once Zoe received the grant, she never acknowledged my contribution. My mother had raged against Zoe and told me that I should not trust her again. My mother generally thought of me as being naive in friendships, giving more than I received. I needed her comfort. 
otherwise, I might have told her that even the most seemingly one-sided friendships worked on reciprocity. If I offered more, I also received the satisfaction of my own kindness. Zoe and I had both got generous commissions in the past weeks. Our old competition seemed truly irrelevant now. We discussed how bountiful this time of growth was. We'd made a routine of talking on the phone in the evenings while walking. No wonder, Zoe said, that birth and creativity spring from the same chakra. The world was opening up to us, setting us on our paths. I too had begun to talk like Zoe, about intentions and fate, the deep knowledge of nature and our bodies. I like the underlying message within this way of speaking, that everything happened for a reason, that I was at the center of meaning with my unique wisdom. During one of our evening conversations, we decided that I would visit Zoe and her husband in their town for a long weekend. I was in my third month by then and already feeling less tired. My trip would coincide with a gathering Zoe was organizing. Not a baby shower, she emphasized, but a ceremony to celebrate life. When it happened, when the bleeding started, I was at home. I called my mother as soon as I got in the taxi. Oh no, my mother said. Oh no, 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 no. I had called her in part thinking that she might be able to stop it, absurdly remembering the theory of the Greek school. Calling on the protection of the community, the man had said, and I repeated his words over and over until the taxi pulled up at the hospital. In the emergency room, I was asked to wait. One woman was brought in on a stretcher, escorted by two policemen. When she went to the toilet to provide her urine sample, one of the policemen went with her and the other guarded the main door. Another woman arrived with a gym bag. Soon a nurse came to her side and asked if she was ready. All right, the woman said, smiling. Let's go. I was trying to intuit whether I was still in the other dimension, but it was so hard to tell, to untangle one thing from the other. The doctor was kind and matter-of-fact. He said that he didn't have good news for me. He presented the options, medicine or surgical removal, adding that I could certainly wait several days before making a decision. It's completely up to you, he said, as if you were doing me a great favor. Whatever you'd like. I called my mother again on my way home. Night had fallen and I decided to walk back, along an avenue with a thick tunnel of trees. I couldn't speak because of my sobbing, and my mother rushed to soothe me, pleading that it would be all right. Even then, I knew that she must be in greater pain than I was, and she was charged with the task of staying strong. Perhaps, I thought, this was the power of which the woman had spoken. For the sake of my mother, I calmed myself. I repeated to her what the doctor had told me, that it had happened some weeks ago and there would have been no way of preventing it. At home, I texted Zoe. I was hoping she would call me immediately, as she had the first time, because I wanted to cry without rain. Oh, darling, Zoe wrote back. Oh, my sweetheart. But she didn't call. The next morning, I had a message that she was thinking of me, followed by a line of red throbbing hearts. For the rest of the week, I waited for it to begin. I'd been told at the hospital that it might take some time to start on its own, and that the safest course would be to end it as soon as possible. I was prescribed three different painkillers, each one stronger than the last, 
so that should I decide to take the medicine, I would feel very little. The operation would also be pain-free. I would fall asleep and wake up, and it would be gone. The thought disturbed me. It was a horror to not feel anything, to force my mind to adjust to the reality that my body hadn't yet accepted. I still felt nauseous. I couldn't stand the smell of perfume or alcohol. My abdomen was swollen. Phrases that Zoe might have used came to me as possible pieces of wisdom. That my body would know what to do. That with acceptance would come relief. But I was no longer in the dimension, and these words did nothing to bring it back. Nor had I returned to the old one. I was now in a different place altogether, with its own misty depths. During these days, I was told repeatedly that what had happened to me was very common. It was a shame, everyone said, that out of humiliation or superstition, women did not talk about it more often. I was given statistics. Friends told me stories far more tragic than my own. Women who'd experienced this farther along lived through stillbirths or the deaths of their young children. The stories didn't make me feel lucky because they didn't mean that I had been spared. Rather, I felt that I had now entered the realm of misfortune, where tragedies suddenly became possibilities, rather than anecdotes about the lives of others. I hadn't spoken to Zoe since she'd sent me the message of throbbing hearts, and I sensed that she was avoiding the corrupted atmosphere that surrounded me, that she feared it would be harmful for her to approach, to breathe in the fumes of my hazardous environment. I kept remembering, then forgetting, that I should tell Zoe I would not be able to make it to her celebration that weekend, though I assumed that she would have figured this out already. I decided to go on a trip alone to the sea, and bought a train ticket for the next day, with only a hasty note to tell my boss that I would be away. I realized that I must be acting strangely, but I had no strength for explanations. The contractions began as the train left the city, traveling past the suburbs, the factories, the empty industrial allotments, then subsided as we moved through fields and small towns erupting out of the cloth of hills. Some hours later, they started again, washing over me with their own meaning, so that I no longer had to think about my situation or try to make sense of it. I needed only to bear the pain. I knew that these were probably not contractions but cramps, I wasn't giving birth, but disposing of life. And yet, in this dimension, they constituted their own sort of birth, a solemn ceremony. By the morning, at the pension I had booked for the weekend, it was all over. The pain had pressed down on me in crashes of thunder, threatening to split me apart. Then, swiftly, mercifully, it had departed. I walked on the beach, Windy that day and unpopulated, the great length of sand filled me with a determination to carry on. I walked for almost an hour, then sat on a smooth bed of rock. I thought how nice it would be to have lunch and a glass of wine when I returned to the pension. The dimension was withdrawing, collapsing in on itself, just like the shocking departure from my body some hours before. I could see myself back in the world, with its simple joys and routines. At the pension, I checked my phone. There was a call from my mother and several messages from friends asking how I was doing. I responded to them one by one, describing the events of the morning and adding that I felt much better. 
I'd inquired at the reception desk about lunch and received an enthusiastic recommendation for a cafe. I would go there after a nap, the thought of which filled me with pleasure. I kicked off my shoes and got into bed. For some minutes, I browsed on my phone, news sites and social media, feeling grateful that I could be interested in any of this, in the old familiar flatness. I saw that Zoe had posted photographs from her ceremony. She was wearing the same long dress she'd worn to our lunch and had a wreath of flowers in her hair. It was a perfect costume, communicating all the creativity and bounty that she and I used to talk about on our evening walks. Two women I didn't know stood on either side of her with their hands on her belly. I could see another reason for Zoe's silence, one that differed from my feeling that my misfortune repulsed her. It might simply have been awkward that what happened to me coincided with her celebration. She had decided that once she'd had a chance to honor her happiness, she would attend to me. She'd hold a space for both, she must have reasoned, the light and the dark. It all seemed so ordinary, this bargaining with the universe. I was sure I would receive a message from Zoe very soon, even that day, suggesting that we talk on the phone or meet up. But only if you feel ready, Zoe would add. The murky days were over. She could now offer me condolence and wish me strength. That was Aisha Gul Savash reading her story, Notions of the Sacred. This is her fourth story in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Ling Ma reads Seeing Irshadi by Nicole Krauss. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.